we have a diverse nation, which I think is wonderful and rich. And we have to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be the best they can be. And when we don't create an environment for people to sort of be the best they can be, we're doing them a disservice and we're doing ourselves a disservice in terms of the opportunities we could have and the drivers we could have in terms of making our country better. Bringing life to vision, sharing a story, So today on our podcast, I am talking with Teresa Baysmore. Teresa is CEO of FHL Bank San Francisco. In her current role, Teresa is dedicated to partnering with the bank's member financial institutions and other stakeholders to promote home ownership, expand access to quality, affordable housing, and boost economic development in her three-state district of Arizona, California, and Nevada. The bank is a core stabilizing force in the U.S. banking system and enriches lives for millions of individuals and families, something that we're going to be talking about today. Teresa also serves on the board of directors of T. Rowe Price Funds and First Industrial Realty Trust, and she's received prestigious industry honors throughout her career, including being named to Savoy Magazine's 2022 list of most influential Black executives in corporate America, which showcases executives, influencers, and achievers who demonstrate an exemplary record of accomplishments and influence while working to better their community and inspire others. I am so excited and so proud to know Teresa. And Teresa, welcome and thank you so much for being here today. Well, great. And thanks for having me. Of course. So Teresa, you have got to be like one of the most busy on the road executives who I have ever met. And I know a lot of executives. In fact, I believe you're at a conference here today, but I just, I've never seen someone who's on the road and at it more than you are. (laughs) I think, I think it's my type A plus personality. (laughs) I I think that way my entire life. I don't think anything's going to change. Yeah, probably not. Um, I'm a bit like you. So um, as we get started, Teresa, I talked a little bit about um, your background, your CEO of of the FHL Bank, um, and congratulations on your latest uh, award. That's a really cool achievement for you. I'm I'm very proud of you for that. And uh, I would love for you to just talk to people a little bit about your background, uh, because you have a very interesting one. Uh, Where you started is not where one would have expected you to land. Uh, And I think that would be great for people to hear a little bit about your own journey. Sure. So um, I'm a native Virginian from not from Northern Virginia, but from the uh, uh, North Virginia Beach area. Um, And then went to the University of Virginia, which I still love and have been involved (laughs) in number of ways. Um, and, and then, but after, after growing up in a suburban neighborhood and going to a college town, I was intent on going to graduate school in a large city. And so I went to New York, can't get any bigger than that. Um, <laughs> and while I was in law school there, um, it w- which was a great experience for me. Um, you learned a lot, not just from school, but just being in an environment 
like New York. Um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to really focus on in my career. And I knew going into law school that I was interested in business in some way, but there are so many different facets. And one of the things I discovered was real estate. So after uh, clerking for a year, I uh, joined what's now DLA Piper. It was called Piper Marbury at the time and started doing commercial real estate deals. And um, and one of my clients was actually a multifamily REIT and they were building or financing the building of apartment complexes across the country. And we were using bond financing where the 20, there was a 20% set aside for affordable apartments. And so that's how I became familiar with that aspect. Um, but then I really wanted to be in the strategy of the business and not just sort of doing deals. And so um, I started talking to recruiters as they would call. So it's like, no, I don't want to go to a different law firm. Um, and I, at the time, you now see lawyers go back and forth between firms and companies. Uh, but at that time, that hadn't happened yet. So I thought I should go to a big company just in case I changed my mind. Um, and someone called me about the Prudential, who had the third largest mortgage origination platform in the country. And but when they read the description of mortgage banking, my reaction was, well, that sounds definitely boring. <laughs> and she talked me into going to the first interview. And what I found is that not only have I loved being in this sector, because it is about putting people in homes, but it also is intellectually challenging because you have the whole consumer aspect mm -hmm. of doing, doing mortgage loans. Um, but you also have the complications of most people think about they got a loan, they see the origination process, mm -hmm, but they don't right. know that there's a whole secondary market behind that or how loans are serviced and what that means. And so I found that to be really interesting. Um, I've moved, I've lived in a number of different cities to uh, take uh, new opportunities, uh, which is different. Um, on a personal level, my husband and I have been married about 13, almost 13 years. And as part of that, um, I also had the benefit of having three new children as part of that. Oh, Not great. children, but they're, I love them dearly. And um, uh, and so after I left Radian, which is where you and I met, uh, where I was the president um, there, um, I retired at quote unquote and started doing corporate <laughs> Um, and then we moved to California and, and this opportunity came up um, almost two years after we got to California. And it seemed like the perfect thing because there was alignment with the mission of the bank and my interest in affordable housing and moving um, us forward in the, in the country in relationship to that. I think that's a wonderful story. And uh, part of what you talked about, I, I wanted you to get into, which is you went into what you call semi-retirement and you have moved out West. And yet two years later, you were able to get back into the game. And I think a lot of people, um, they worry about if they step away, what's going to happen. 
So, you know, what did you do during that time period? And, and what was it that drove you to get back into the business, if you will? So, I mean, I had been through the great financial crisis, oh, right? Yeah. It had been one challenge after the next. And I think once, um, you know, I, one of the things I'm most proud of at Radiant is we got through the financial crisis and we built market share to a high level yeah. of where it had ever been. Um, and so you get to a point where you sort of have accomplished a lot. And the challenges just don't seem to be there. Things are sort of moving along. Um, and I just felt like it was time to do something else, but I didn't know what that was. And fortunately, I've been very involved in industry throughout my career. Um, so I know a lot of people and I immediately started getting calls about board opportunities much, much more quickly than I ever oh. expected. I actually joined three boards in less than a year from my retirement. Um, and the first one was the Federal Home Loan Bank of Pittsburgh. So that was my first foray into the Federal Home Loan Bank uh, system. Um, so that kept me busy because they were all a little bit different. You know, the Federal Home Loan Bank, You were there was a lot to learn there. Um, I joined the board of a mortgage REIT. Uh, mm. And so there was that was a different sort of aspect. And then really joining the T. Rowe Price Funds Board. So for those who don't know, every mutual fund has to have its own board of directors because mm. we look out, we are the fiduciaries for the investors in the fund versus the corporate board that will, is running the advisor, right? So there's a separate oh, corporate and so we are a unitary mutual funds board where we are the board for each of the mutual funds that are managed by T. Rowe Price. And so learning the whole mutual funds industry and asset management. So that all kept me like really, inter you know, interested. Yeah. It was challenging. Um, and it helped me, you know, make that transition. Because I think if you're someone who's been a hard charging sort of hard working person, you have to have some thought about what you're going to do. I think it's too difficult. And that could be nonprofit work. Mm -hmm. I was involved in a number of nonprofits. In fact, shortly after I uh, left Radian, I became the uh, chair of the board for the Kimmel Center, which is the performing arts okay. center in Philadelphia. So, yes. um, so I was involved in a lot of nonprofit work too. So it's about sort of keeping yourself involved and engaged. Um, and honestly, I wasn't necessarily looking to go back to work. Um, people kept asking me, would I go back to work? Full time, and I said it really is a question of is there something that resonates with me, and um, and so that's what happened in this particular case. I was really interested in how do we move the affordable housing needle. How do we also, as we see changing demographics in our country, we still have a pretty wide gap in home ownership particularly when it comes to Black folks and Latinos. Mm -hmm. And how do, what can we do to sort of address those issues? We have increases in homelessness, right? Which have mm -hmm. been yeah. somewhat 
exacerbated because of COVID. And I still worry about where we are in that regard. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. And so it's a little bit more difficult when you're not working somewhere to have a platform to focus on those issues. So to mm-hmm. have an opportunity where part of the mission of the organization is affordable housing, economic revitalization, community development. There was an alignment with my interests personally. Um, And so it just seemed like it was perfect, especially since the opportunity was in California and we were already in. That was wonderful. And I couldn't believe when I got the call from you about what you were doing. And so I'd love for you to, so we're going to get into the whole um, affordable housing and really what people can do to get involved, right? What leaders in the community can do to get involved. But first, let's talk a little bit about the Federal Home Loan Bank. Um, I learned a lot and and it, it took a little bit of time too to really learn what the business is and what you do and how you partner with uh, within your within your jurisdiction. It happens to be street, three states that you're in with member financial institutions. So, or they become members. So talk a little bit about what they do. And, um, you know, you, you discuss affordable housing and community investment, just kind of ground us all a little bit in that, if you would. So, so first of all, the federal home loan bank system was created by Congress in 1932. And I always think about, you know, kind of, it's a wonderful life, right? Uh-huh. Where there was the bank, the George Bailey, you know, the Bailey building and loan or whatever it was called. And um, and if, if, if George Bailey had been a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank, he could have called and gotten <laughs> a loan from the bank to, to stabilize his institution. So, you know, we there are 11 of us. We cover different regions. As you mentioned, we're Arizona, California, and Nevada. And we believe that we essentially enriched the lives of all Americans because we're there to support our member financial institutions, their banks, credit unions, insurance companies, community development financial institutions. Um, And we do that by making sure they have the capital they need to do their lending in the community, whether that's homes, whether it's multifamily construction, whether it's small businesses. Um, and, And so we help make sure they can provide those funds. And to your point, we also partner with them on um, in other ways, whether it's affordable housing grants, and we we could talk a little bit about that um, later, but we are very active and that's a huge part of our mission. Um, You know, we we just saw what happened in the banking sector. Mm -hmm. Federal home loan banks were a huge part of stabilizing the banking situation. Um, And so we continue to be a core force in stabilizing the U.S. banking system. Um, And we lend day in and day out. A lot of people don't realize that. We lend day in and day out um, to our members. uh, And then we see spikes in that lending during periods of stress. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're always there. So I want to go right into affordable housing. And so I happen to be, I'd serve on the Downtown Development Authority in Roswell, Georgia. 
And we're all about business investment, you know, business investing in the community. So basically it's about the financial wellness of, a, of the city of Roswell. We have a, a strict jurisdiction. Always it comes up at city hall meetings, uh, affordable housing. And, you know, in our town here, here's what people think about. They think about apartments, not more apartments. Oh my God, we don't have the streets, right? To, to even support the apartments. And then people think about subsidized housing, um, you know, and, and in a lot of, it, unfortunately, right, in a lot of areas across the United States, uh, subsidized housing has a negative connotation. And, you know, what I want to have a, a good conversation about is educate people on what is affordable housing. And, you know, I and we can have a good discussion around what it is, why it benefits a community. Um, and the difference that it makes. Yeah, so so first of all, I think more recently, people have used the term workforce housing. And if you, you think mm. about it, the, the workforce is at different economic levels. And so often now, people that are so important to our communities, whether they're teachers or police officers, firefighters, nurses, um, they can't afford housing, especially in some of the more expensive areas of our country. But we need those folks, right? So when I think about affordable housing, I think about different levels of affordable housing based on income levels, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and it's important that we have that diversity of housing, but it also should be safe housing and clean housing and housing that you would want your family to live in, right? Um, and and so that's part of it um, that's really important as I think about the provision of affordable housing. You know, we have a lot of people now in our state, about 40% who spend more than 30% of their income in housing. And when oh, you start, wow. right, I mean, and that they are usually referred to as cost burden. If you're cost burden, that means, and, and some of those folks are at closer to 50%, especially as wow. income level goes down. So we're talking about people who are working each and every day, but can't afford housing or decent housing. And, um, and I think we have an obligation in our country to make sure that there's adequate housing. It benefits us all in terms of families, um, stable families. It has an effect on children and how they feel safe in their communities. Um, it's shown that kids that, particularly those who can be in uh, homes where their parents own the home, tend to have a higher graduation rate from high school. A larger percentage of them tend to go to post-secondary school. Um, and so there are huge benefits for us as a society, uh, but home ownership is so fundamental. How can you do those other things or be concerned about those other things if you don't have a roof over your head or a good roof over your head. 
You know, the I talked to a, a great deal of 20-something and early something year olds. And it's it's pretty bleak, Teresa. They do not believe they will be able to ever afford a home. And you know, my kids have said to me, I mean, if I'm lucky, maybe you'll give me your home one day. I'm like, what? I, I never even thought like that, right? I grew up, you know, having that belief that I would own a home. And there's something, you know, something that's happening, right? Um, and people aren't even believing that they can even get there, young people. There's, there's, a, I think, a few different dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. So one is and you have to have the whole spectrum of housing, kind of what I was talking about. Yeah. So you have to have reasonable rental or else uh, young folks don't have the ability to save for a down payment. We've also seen the cost of housing, home ownership go up. Now it went up even more significantly during COVID uh, because people wanted to live in larger homes. They were working from home. Their kids were going to school from home. Um, And so we saw housing prices go up. They've moderated some. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see them go back down to where they were, uh, but it is helping to moderate. Then you have higher interest rates. We were in such a low interest rate environment yes. for such a long time. Um, and so that's made it more difficult for some people to buy a home. But that down payment is a huge part of it. And in fact, one of the things that we do as federal home loan banks is we provide down payment assistance. And uh, the most of us, our programs are down payment assistance for those that are 80% or below of the average median income. So oh, uh, for that area. Um, and so that helps people get into homes, but I totally get it. And then you add in student debt. We've been I, looking at that. Yeah with the Urban Institute. And so if you have student debt, that also has an effect on your ability to qualify for a mortgage because mortgage lenders, as they we would expect, look at your debt to income. And that's a factor mm-hmm. in whether you're eligible for a loan. So I think there are a number of reasons, uh, but we have to try to figure out ways to get more affordable rentals so that young people can save money. There may be needs for some of them to get grants as we have in, you know, for that down payment assistance. Not everyone can get help from family to to, to do that first yeah. down payment. Um, I had the benefit of my parents were able to help me with my first down payment. Yeah. Um, but we have to think about those things. And you mentioned uh, a little bit ago this concern about more apartments, et cetera. Well, you know, we we do have to have some more density, right? And it doesn't necessarily some some of the housing could be uh, nice townhomes or those kinds of things, but we we are going to have to have a bit more density and for in order for people to have affordable homes and for us to try to keep from pushing people into homelessness. Yeah, which is. Just unbelievable right now, the level of homelessness that we are seeing across our country. Um, Okay, we're going to pull this all together. But first, I want to shift and talk about community investment. 
because this is another area where the home loan bank can have a, a big impact within a community by partnering with the member financial institutions. And then I want to segue into what business leaders can do, but let's talk a little bit about community investment and what FHL Bank does. And, you know, I don't even know. Um, I I know a little of the investment, like maybe it could be a park, you know, but I don't really know everything that could, that qualifies, if you will. And is it in underserved communities? Like, how does that all work today? So one of the things that we do, so we, first of all, we have an affordable housing program that we can talk about where we actually do large grants to help fund various types of uh, uh, housing, right? It could be housing for homeless vets. Veterans. It could be senior housing. Um, we look at what the needs are across the district. It's a competitive program for those grants. Um, and so that's a big chunk of what we do. Mm. Um, we also do the down payment assistance that I talked about. Um, and I'm happy to say that at this point in our, uh, our competitive grant program, we've now funded $1.25 billion that has created 148,000 homes, both single family uh, rental and single family uh, for purchase. Um, Across the system, that's $7 billion. So the Federal Home Loan Bank system is the largest private provider of grants in in this space. Uh, But we also do a lot of voluntary programs. Um, which is kind of what you're getting at and on the community development side. Each bank has different types of programs because we develop those programs on the basis of what we see as the need in our district. But we have a program called AHEAD. And in that program, we make direct grants to community organizations and nonprofits who are helping to create quality job training and placement programs. It may be for financial literacy education, other opportunities around social services programs. Actually, when we had an employee town hall a couple of months ago, a couple of AHEAD grant recipients came in and they were focused on helping childcare businesses so think about, you know, some of in some of the rural areas where there's not childcare available. And um, and so you have opportunities for, you know, people in the community to create childcare in their homes or in, you know, in a facility somehow. Um, but they don't have the background or the inf- information about what they need to do, how to run the business, et cetera. And some of these grants have been used to fund nonprofits that can help give those folks the tools. And so think about it. It's helping them create their own small business, but it's also been providing a service that's highly needed for the community where people can feel free going to work and, and earning income that they need to support their families but not having to worry about their children being taken care of appropriately while they're at work. So so that's another area, you know, at our bank, we've done about 700 
projects. Um, it's about $21 million uh, that we've given um, over uh, since I think 2008. We also do other matching programs. So we like to do things in partnership with our members. So our members are involved in our affordable housing programs. When we do down payment assistance, they're making the loan and getting the grant money for, from us to give to the uh, new homeowner um, to make those deals happen. But we've done a lot of different matching grants where we've done things around disaster relief, as you can imagine, uh, oh, in yeah. our district, fire issues, um, pandemic recovery. Um, we did a program last year with respect to home ownership counseling, where we put up a million dollars and our members did another 1.2. So homeownership counseling agencies received 2.25 altogether um, that helped them provide counseling to folks to either buy a home or stay in the home. And, um, and, and so that's important. Uh, about a year ago, we embarked on a program with the Urban Institute out of DC that we call are calling the Racial Equity Accelerator. And we're funding um, it at 1.5 million dollars, but we have four areas that we're focused on. And one of the areas is, are there ways to address some of the systemic biases in uh, mortgage originations? And how we underwrite? Wow. Are there are there different? Is there different data? Other types of information like rental payment history mm -hmm. that can be incorporated um, into those underwriting decisions. Another area is looking at automated tools and algorithms, and making sure that those tools are being used. That the data that's going into those tools is not creating bias um, on in the future. Um, we've looked at student debt and are there ways to address mm. student debt going forward in, because that's holding a lot of people back from, um, home ownership. And the last area is focused on how do you help people with short-term, uh, issues, right? Mm -hmm. So I own a house. Um, and something happens. People don't just walk away from their homes. Usually yeah. there's some something that happens? Um, and are there ways to help people so that they don't have to walk away from their homes? If you think about home ownership, if you can own a home, not only does it bring all of some of the good things we were talking about earlier, but you can get a fixed rate mortgage, right? Your payment's never going to go up. And that means that as your income grows, your capacity to do other things also grows. And um, it also means that as the value of your home is go going up, you're also growing the equity, right? You're able to then pass on intergenerational wealth. You may be able to use some of that equity to help fund your kids' college tuition. Um, yeah. There's so many benefits to home ownership. So, you know, so we're trying to figure out, are there ways that are still creating sustainable homeownership because what you don't want is to put people in homes they can't afford. But there yeah, are ways that happen. To look at Absolutely, we don't want to play that again, right? No. Uh, so, but there are great new innovations programs that do look at 
of whether someone has the ability to repay in other ways that do create sustainable homeownership. So we're focused on some of those uh, those areas. It's an unbelievable mission. And, you know, um, well, I'll tell a story about community investment, but then I want to get back to this, these grants and then what business leaders can do. Um, there's a, a company that we do business with. They're, they're one of the largest suppliers of like uh, equipment and uh, like a, apparel and equipment to, to high schools for their sports teams. And they actually take a portion of their revenues and they put it back into the community. And what they specifically focus on are the schools, be it branding, colors, fixing signs that are broken, right? Because they know that school pride also is a direct correlation to um, kids graduating, that it also impacts suicide rates, right? Having that pride and that connection in the, the community. So we know that there are pockets of things that are being done. And what I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about these grants, which is incredible, down payment assistance. And I'm thinking about companies that are in communities. I'm thinking about leaders that are there that are, are listening. And, you know, how can they impact and, and like get involved? So do they reach out to their financial institution, find out if they're partnered with an FHL bank? Like, I don't, you know, what would be some practical advice and things that they could do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of them is that um, going to their financial institution, looking at different programs they might have, are there ways for them to get involved? Um, but I also think there are other ways to, you know, have a tangible, uh, mm -hmm. you know, impact in the community. And uh, to your point, helping to improve how things look. So as a, as a bank, right? Separate, our employees uh, do a project called Rebuilding Together. It's a, it's a charity that's all over the country. We go, um, we help build a, a playground last year. Um, there are um, ways to, I think it's a great way to get employees involved. Um, I am a personal um supporter, my husband and I, of Habitat for Humanity. Um, there's nothing better than going and doing work at a, a Habitat project and then seeing the family who's going to benefit from that. Um, uh, but also, I think mentoring and being, because a lot of kids don't necessarily see models of who they can be in the future. And I think this is incredibly important. Just as, a, as an anecdote, years ago when I was still at my law firm, uh, there was a high school in Baltimore that had a 50% dropout rate. This was, wow. I don't even want to know how long ago this was because it my <laughs> age, not that you can't look it up. But, um, but, but there was a program developed and the idea was to ask people to give a small amount of money uh, each student could get $5,000 towards their secondary after after high school education. But the other idea was to have these folks mentor the students. Mm -hmm. uh, a, someone came in, a psychologist, and identified about 30 or 35 students who had the ability to finish and go on with their education afterwards, but who were at risk. So they weren't trying to find mm -hmm. the students 
who were definitively probably going to graduate from high school, but the kids yeah. were at risk not to. And our law firm got involved, and which was great because there were so many more of us, right? That we could give a good chunk of money, but also get involved. And, and so I ended up coordinating the program uh, for the, 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 for the firm. And I would get a different lawyer to go meet with the students every week. And they could talk about whatever they could talk about architecture. They could talk about, you know, anything, but it was about them seeing other opportunities. A lot of these kids hadn't even been to the inner Harbor of Baltimore and nice. so I worked with the the teacher who was helping them, who had previously been on the city council at the time. Kwaise and Fume was the um, congressman from Baltimore, mm-hmm. and um, and I got the firm to uh, get a bus, and we uh, took them down to Washington D.C. and they went on a White House tour. We took them mm-hmm. to Congress. They could be in the gallery. Um, I truly believe you have to show kids that there are opportunities and things that they can do. And so as I think about businesses in the community and leaders in the in the business community, sort of helping to find opportunities, whether it's through nonprofits or whether it's working with your financial institutions to, to provide that and to talk to kids and show them. And we're also cultivating our own workforce for the future. I think we forget, right, that we need (laughs) to cultivate these young people to work for us one day. (laughs) And, And so there's sort of a double benefit. It's a societal benefit. It's also a benefit for all of us to have a great workforce in the future. And we're all challenged with that right now. Yeah. You're right. Wow. That's very well said. Um, You know, I want to ask you about the economy, business ahead, just kind of there's a lot of headwinds for leaders like yourself all across the world, right? This isn't a U.S. issue, right? The economic headwinds. And what are you hearing is on the top of mind of, of your peers and you know, even for yourself, what do you, what are you most thinking about? And, uh, and what are you doing about it? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big believer in strategic planning and I'm a big believer that you create a strategic plan that is dynamic. Right. Um, and that is, um, uh, not on the shelf, so to speak, right? That, um, and so one of the things that we've done is we've made our strategic planning process a lot more robust since Hmm. I joined the bank. And um, our leadership team is fully involved in it. We're always looking at what are the things we should be focused on. Um, In fact, we're gonna be uh, spending time next week talking, looking at the initiatives that we chose at the end of last year and kind of taking another look at how are they doing, but is there anything that is in the environment that we should be thinking differently? Should we pause something? Should we change something? Mm -hmm. Is there something else that we didn't contemplate, but now given changes in what's happening in the environment, business environment, in the economy, are there changes we should make? One of the things I learned going through the financial crisis was the concept of scenario planning. 
and hmm. to sort of step back and say, what are the other scenarios that could happen that are different from the assumptions that you used as the basis for your strategic plan, uh, as the basis for your business plan for the year? And could, if those things, those how likely are those scenarios? And if those scenarios were to play out, would you still do the things that you're planning to do or that you're working on? Or would you pivot and do something else or do something differently, make adjustments? And, um, and I think that's ever more important again today then maybe it maybe we had a period of time where it was less important but i think we're back to a, a place where it's important to constantly be checking that and also the other thing is um and this is this is challenging but to try to figure out what are the weak signals of when mm. you those things happening when it when is when it, what are those things you're looking for that could be a change that would require you to change and how do you try to identify that those things are starting to happen um and so to me that's how we're thinking about it and how we're and 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 trying to make sure we're staying on top of what the trends are and what do they mean um, and so that's how we're focused um, at our bank. Uh, and I think that um, I think that's what others are doing uh, as well. Yeah. So are you finding that you're meeting with your team more frequently um, to, to really talk about what those scenarios could look like? And, and who do you get involved in all of that, Teresa? So I have a pretty uh, broad leadership team. I like that because I want different disciplines at the table. I want different viewpoints at the table. I don't like having yes people at the table because I may have a view coming into the room, but I may hear other thoughts that I walk out of the room with a different view. Um, And so that's what I want. And so, you know, it's my COO and our, you know, chief risk officer, our head of internal audit, our chief human resources officer, um, the, you know, technology folks are in the room, including the cyber um, folk, one of the cyber, head of cyber, um, uh, our, the, the head of DEI is in the room. So, um, you know, so really trying to make sure that we have a lot of diversity of thought in the room. Um, we meet as a team once a week, unless there's something where we need to meet more frequently. Um, but we meet every week and we everyone can put topics on the agenda. We try to make sure we're not focused on sort of the mundane stuff that could be dealt with at other times, but that we're focused on topics that are are more important or strategic or where we believe everyone should have a a voice in kind of uh, thinking about the decision. And then we've gone to meeting usually about three times a year, sometimes four, to really talk and delve into the discussions around the strategic plan 
and our initiatives and how we're focused on that and and whether we should be making any changes. Um, And so so that's kind of the cadence of how we're handling it. I think that's really good and important for people to think about strategic planning, account planning, both of them, right? We talk about being dynamic, flexible, include some scenario planning, ever more important. So I want to shift gears and talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, You know, you and I have had the conversation. You are an extremely accomplished executive who happens to be Black and female. And, uh, you know, you're, you're like a exceptional individual who's had all kinds of, you know, recognition and awards and um, your capabilities and what you do is just incredible. And, you know, in spite of all that, right. And that's why I want to talk to you. We have, we still, this diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be a huge topic. Um, especially I think during the pandemic, it rose again, even greater. And, you and I were having a conversation that divides seem to be even getting greater for whatever reason. Um, but I wanted to kind of get your view on what DEI means to you uh, in the workplace, in a community, why it's important, you know, and, and what we all can do, right? So we'll have a good conversation or what we can all do to ensure that we're mindful, right? And thinking about it, and it just becomes part of our own muscle memory. Yeah, so um, I actually had a recruiter refer to me as a purple unicorn. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Purple. Purple unicorn. But we have a diverse nation, which I think is wonderful and rich. And we have to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be the best they can be. And when we don't create an environment for people to sort of be the best they can be. We're doing them a disservice and we're doing ourselves a disservice in terms of the opportunities we could have and the drivers we could have in terms of making our country better, right? And so when I think about DEI, it's about bringing everybody along and giving everybody opportunity You know, I think about it in terms of talent management, right? In terms of, are we, are we really sort of looking at each and every person and saying, you know, how can we help them develop? What can we give them? And are we making sure each and every person has the ability to develop? And we're not just developing the person who reminds us of ourselves. Um, (laughs) And then inclusion is really important as well, right? Because people need to feel like they can bring their true selves to work, right? And that they can be who they are, and they're going to be respected for who they are. Um, And we all have different experiences. Some of that comes from our different racial, ethnic, you know, gender uh, backgrounds, but some of it comes from our lived experiences, right? Some of which may have been different because of those things, but some of them are different, not because of those things. They may be because of our interests, et cetera. And so making sure everyone feels like they have a seat at the table and that they're included and they're respected to me is just 
how we should all treat each other. Mm-hmm. And, and there are opportunities for us. I think when you get to know people of different backgrounds, you find, find that we have more in common than yeah. we have not in common. Um, right. We all care about community. We all care about our families. We all care about having a safe place to be, right? No one wants the bad things. And right. so, um, and so if we could work together to make sure that we are um, doing those things and bringing everyone to the table, I think it would be beneficial. And look, we also have to recognize the demographics of our comp- country are changing. Yeah. And it's important to bring everybody to the table, right? Um, if we want to continue to be the superpower that we have been as a country. And if we want to have the right folks coming into the workforce, the folks that are in uh, the demographics across the country, we need to bring everyone to the, to the table so that they can be part of our workforce and contributing to our society. Well, you believe the same that I do. My, my big concern is, you know, when you look at the, take a step back, and you think about not only does it just damage our people, right? When we when we don't think about, I, I love that you said, you know, DEI is about including everyone and, you know, looking at what the opportunities look like for everyone and bringing everyone around the table. I think that's so important. And when we don't do that, we give a big disservice to people. And the bigger picture when we have that divide is it also just impacts our our entire economy, if you think about it like that, our quality of life suffers, everything suffers. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And I think if we could take it from that lens, then hopefully we could get away from, you know, those voices that try to use it to divide us rather than to move Yep. I think that's extremely well said. So let's talk about um, that. There are a lot of companies, right? They'll have like a DEI task force, right? And, you know, I just want to get your perspective on that for how leaders do this right. Because a lot of people, you know, roll their eyes. It's another task force. Is it really going to make a difference or not? You know, so how do, how do I, as a leader, Think about how do I bring this to my workforce where it's normal, it's natural, right? We have a task force, not a no issue with that. But there are a lot of things that happen like that become initiatives, then they die. And it, it doesn't really become part of the fiber of a company. So what advice and and what have you done that actually helps make it part of your own, you know, company community that you end up bringing out into your own community? So we have a DEI, you know, committee um, within yep. our company. It's all, there's also one at our board level. Um, and, and uh, but to me, it's much more of a coordinating role. It's much more of a thought about, um, you know, what kind of programming do we have? Yep. Are we, are there things we should be doing differently? There's a lot of coordination with um, human resources in that regard. Um, but also one of the things that we have are employee resource groups mm-hmm. and they're for different purposes. 
right? So there may be an African-American employee group or a Latino, Chicano group, or there might Asian group, um, but there's a working parents group and there's a women's group and everyone is invited. You don't have to be in that group to participate in that group. And, and, and they have events. They, you know, we have the, our, our LGBTQ group brought a film in for everyone to see if they wanted to, um, which helps just helps us all learn more. Um, when, when we were at the early stages of COVID, when we were trying to get people to come back in the office, you know, we're in the Bay area and we were seeing a lot of problems with Asian hate Mm. and, uh, and we had employees who were afraid to come to the office, you know, like putting aside the issue of whether people want to come back to the office in general, this was a true sort of fear issue. And while I could help try to protect people in the office, I can't protect anyone on their way to the office. Um, And so we really partnered as a management team with the leaders of our Asian Um, employee resource group. And they had some fabulous ideas about how we could support our Asian employee community, like providing self-defense training or providing for, you know, for, for um, employees to sort of work together, to commute together um, or those kinds of things. So they, it was a positive way of us supporting employees that also was beneficial to us as a company to try to make sure we're retaining imp- great employees as yep. well. Because this is also about retention, wanting people wanting to work at our bank. Um, we want people to feel like they want to be there. Yeah. The mission that we do is a huge part of that. I mean, we we have a lot of people who do work at our bank because they love the mission. And I think young people are even more attracted to that um, now. They wanna feel like they're working um, somewhere where part of the benefit is that that institution is trying to do something for the greater good. Yeah. Well, I think that's just great. And uh, on that note, I think we have just created a fantastic podcast together, Teresa. So (laughs) I want to thank you so much for being here today. It was insightful, thoughtful. You spoke from your heart. I really appreciate it. And uh, I learned a few things today. So thank you. And I hope one day you'll come back. Sounds good. Thanks, Michelle. Always good to see you. Great to see you.